I've just titled this message, Come Thou Found. And what I'd like to do with you is look at every one of these lines in this song we just sang and consider them in light of the Scriptures and hopefully open our understanding. I mean, just you can raise your hand or not, but just at the beginning, who knows what an Ebenezer is? We just sang this song, Here I Raise Mine Ebenezer. What does that mean? Well, we sing things all the time that we don't think about what they actually mean. And so hopefully today we'll be able to look and see. I see Raylan raising her hand. She knows who Ebenezer Scrooge is maybe. But we'll look at what the Ebenezer is in this song. I don't know if that's what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I don't think that's what they're talking about either, Royce. So we start with the first line. Come thou fount of every blessing. This fount that's being referred to here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fountain from which every blessing flows. Every good and perfect gift that God the Father gives to us finds its amen in His Son. One scripture to consider on this is John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus says, I'm the One. Come and drink from Me. He is the fountain that we're crying out to. Come, Thou fount of every blessing. The second line in the song says, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? I love the way these hymn writers use language and they illustrate points to us. Tune your heart. He speaks about the heart as if it were an instrument that needed to be tuned so that it sounds right. And what does he say? Tune my heart to sing thy grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 13, Paul writes and says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. So here's essentially what Paul's saying. He's quoting from David there actually. And he's saying, I believed and so I spoke. And our singing is tuned by the truth of God. If you believe the truth, it's going to come out of your mouth. Many of you probably have grandchildren, don't you? Great-grandchildren, perhaps, some of you. Now, if somebody starts asking you about your children or grandchildren, you'll be really excited. You want to tell them all about them because you love them. They mean a lot to you. You care about them. They're important to you. If someone asks you about the Lord Jesus Christ, this fountain from from which every blessing flows, how ready are we to talk or sing about Him? To sing about the grace of God. He says, tune my heart. Work in my heart so that I'm singing Your grace. The next line we read, streams of mercy never ceasing. You told me whenever we walked in, you said, well, doing about the same as always. You know, not, not great, but doing okay. Can't really complain, but you know, that could, there are things could be better. And yet he, sent, he says, the, song, the hymn writer says, streams of mercy never ceasing. The mercy of God never ceases. No matter what your circumstance is or how hard things may be for you, God's mercies do not cease. I just want to read quickly for you from Lamentations. Actually, I'll read it to you off the page. Lamentations 3, 22-23 says this, 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, what is mercy? What does it mean to get mercy? Have you ever thought about this? People use the terms grace and mercy interchangeably. A person says, well, a lot of people think grace or mercy means, well, it's a little bit of kindness of some kind. It's a little bit of help of some kind. Well, let me give you biblical definitions for these terms. Grace means unmerited favor. You have not earned it. You, you, you are not owed this. So grace is when God gives you something that you don't deserve. Mercy is when God withholds from you what you do deserve. If you think about it this way, you might see it depicted in an old play or an old story or film where you'll see the, a king over a great medieval region and, and the person that's standing before him guilty cries out, Mercy, King, mercy! What he's asking for is, I'm guilty, please don't chop my head off. Please don't kill me, even though that's what I deserve. Mercy means we don't get what we deserve. And so, there from Lamentations, we hear, His mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. What does that mean? It means that every day that we wake up, no matter how difficult we may have things in life, every day is mercy. Every moment that any sinful person spends outside of hell and outside of the wrath of God, that means you're, getting what you don't, you're not getting what you deserve. You're not getting what your works, your sin deserves. His mercies are new every morning. Each day that I wake up, I'm reminded, God, Your mercies are new every morning. You have given fresh mercies for this day. Streams of mercy never ceasing. And what is it that these mercies, these streams of mercies that never cease, what are they meant to produce in us? Streams of mercy that never cease, they call for songs of loudest praise. In other words, you wake up in the morning and you realize God's given me fresh life for another day. Praise God! I have new life. There's a song of praise produced in the heart of one who sees that they actually do have mercy. Now if I wake up and I think, well, I'm alive again today, and that's pretty much what I deserve anyway. Matter of fact, if I got what I deserved, I would get a lot more nice things, better things. That's not humble. That's arrogant and prideful. And that's not going to produce praise towards God. But humility and recognizing that we have not been given what we deserve ought to produce this songs of loudest praise. Psalm 106.1 says this, Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. These songs of loudest praise unto God because His love and His mercy endures forever. And then we read, Teach me some melodious sonnet. So we're praying in our song here. We're asking God to teach me a song. Teach me a sonnet. Teach me this beautiful, sweet sound that I might sing it to you. Teach me some melodious sonnet. Psalm 13 verse 6 says this, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. You see the common thread in the Scriptures and in the song we sing? Teach me some melodious sonnet. Give me something to sing about, God. Tell me something else about You that causes my heart to dance, that causes my affections to be stirred. Tell me something else about Yourself, God. Give me something to sing about. That's the request. Teach me some melodious sonnet. And there's an interesting point I want to make in light of that. 
A lot of people think that songs are supposed to primarily be kind of soft and kind of stirring your emotions a little bit, but not really any depth. One of the reasons I love expositing these hymns is because according to the Scriptures, genuine worship is produced by knowledge. You're only going to be able to worship God to the degree you know who He is. And if you don't know what's true about God, you can't worship Him rightly. And so the, the hymn writer says, teach me some melodious song. Teach me something. Give me truth to sing about. Instruct me. And the next thing we find, teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. What do you suppose that's about? He's saying, teach me the song that angels sing. Give me a song of truth about God which the angels are constantly singing and proclaiming. You'll find if you go and look in Isaiah chapter 6, you'll see that there's these angels that are gathered around the throne of God and they cry day and night without ceasing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is filled with His glory. And they sing constantly without end to God. Well, that's one idea of singing the songs that angels sing. But let me give you one other more specific song that the angels sing. From Luke chapter 2. You can just listen to this. This song of praise that's erupting from the mouths of angels. Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. should be very familiar to you. You've surely heard this Scripture read around Christmas time. Beginning here in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. So, you want to know something that's interesting about this. These angels that are singing this here, these are holy angels. These are elect angels. These are not the angels that fell whenever Lucifer fell. These are sinless creatures. And yet, these who, they don't stand to gain anything by Jesus going to the cross and dying. It's not going to save them. They, they're already secure. They haven't fallen. So why is it that yet we see the glory of Jesus coming into the world causes these angels to erupt in praise? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Why? Because unto us a child is born. One came to deal with sin to the glory of God. And so we're asking, teach me to sing the songs of angels. And the angels proclaim these things, the glory of God. And the last part of this first verse we find, Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. What do you suppose this is about? What is the mount of God's redeeming love? What do you think that could possibly be? Well, in the song it's a reference to a certain mount, a mountain or a hill to be more specific, called Mount Calvary. You ever heard of Mount Calvary? You know what the word Calvary means? It's actually from the Latin calva, which means skull. It's a reference to Golgotha. This is the place outside of Jerusalem, the trash heap outside of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. So here the hymn writer is telling us, praise the mount, praise the hill of death that Jesus went to. 
And He calls the hill of death one at the, one and the same time the hill or mount of redeeming love. Praise God for what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This is the conclusion of our first verse. This hill, Calvary, that Jesus died for us on. The second verse begins this way. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. What does Ebenezer mean? Well, it's taken from 1 Samuel chapter 7. And to give you the literal understanding, an Ebenezer just means a stone of help. But let me read this Scripture for you to get the idea. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Here's the picture. Apart from God acting, there's no victory in battle. There's no overcoming. There's no conquering. And he lifts this stone, this Ebenezer, God, to the, to the glory of God alone. God did this. The victory is the Lord's. Now think about that in light of what we're seeing. He's singing, Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Unmerited favor. I haven't earned this. I don't deserve this. His mercies are new every morning. They're ceaseless mercies, these streams of mercies. So God's grace and God's mercy. We haven't done anything to earn it, to deserve it. And so he cries out in this second verse, I'm raising up this acknowledgement that this is only by God. And that's how he continues into the next part. Hither by thy help I'm come. I wouldn't be here praising you unless you did something in me first. It's a declaration of our dependence upon God that we could not have won the victory ourselves. And notice he says this, Hither by thy help I'm come. A lot of people have this weird idea. They think, well, I can come to God whenever I want to. A lot of people that are lost right now will say, well, I'll get right with God someday. I'll go to the Lord someday and I'll, I'll, I'll seek forgiveness someday whenever I feel good and ready. The hymn tells us this, and especially in light of 1 Samuel, Hither by Thy help I'm come. I'm here not because of my power, His power. It is God who draws His people to Himself. And if He does not do that, no one is coming to God unless He, by His power, draws them to Himself. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. So now when we sing the song together and we say, here I raise my Ebenezer, we all know we're saying, God, it's according to Your power that I'm here praising You. Nothing I've done. That's what we're singing when we say, here I raise my Ebenezer. The next line of the song says, and I hope by Thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. What's he saying here? Philippians 1 verse 6 says this, and I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I hope, this isn't like hoping in hope. This isn't looking outside and saying, oh, I hope the wind dies down today, or oh, I hope we get some rain. This kind of hope is a hope that's grounded in a confidence in what God has promised. The best definition I've heard for Christian hope is this. Christian hope is not saying, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but man, I sure hope it turns out good. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope is hope is faith that's fixed in the future. See, faith is believing what God said. Hope is believing that God will do what God said He will do. So hope is not blind. It's rooted in what God has said. He says, and I hope, what's the grounds of His hope? Your good pleasure. 
I hope, according to God's good pleasure, that I will safely arrive at home, that I will reach heaven's gates, that I will be entered, I will be brought into glory with God. Why? The good pleasure of God. That God has promised it, He will do it. And we know that God is the one, we just said, here I raised my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. I'm come because of what God did in me. And it's because of what God's going to continue to do in me that I am going to arrive at home someday. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. The next line of the song says this, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. You ever meet anybody and you ask them what they think about Jesus Christ or about God and they say, well, I've always loved God. I've always been a Christian. I was born a Christian. I've always been this way. I grew up going to church. No. He says, Jesus sought me when a stranger. I wasn't a child of God. I wasn't living unto God. I was living unto myself and living for the sinful desires of my flesh. And Jesus came and did something to me while I was wandering from Him. I wasn't following God. I was running from God. There's no person that's a Christian because that's how they were born. We're all born enemies of God because of the sin nature we inherit from Adam. And as strangers, Jesus sought us. You know, the Scripture says this, that God has demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not loving God, following God. Jesus came and stopped us. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. You're familiar with Paul, right? the man whom God used to write the majority of the New Testament, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who was seeking to kill Christians and putting them to death. The first Christian martyr in the Scriptures was Stephen. Saul was there approving of it. They laid all of Stephen's clothes and his possessions at Saul's feet after they stoned, him to de- after they stoned Stephen to death. So Saul, not a good guy. He's riding down the road one day on his horse. A great light shines out of heaven and blinds him and knocks him off his horse. And says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus apprehended him, arrested him. Actually, that's the language Paul goes on to use later on to Timothy. And he says, I, I, I'm striving, I'm laboring. He says this in Philippians as well. He says, I'm, I'm striving to apprehend that for which I've been apprehended. He says, someone grabbed hold of me. And I'm trying to grab hold of him. He's describing what God did in saving him. But before Jesus reached down and grabbed him, he was wandering. He was a stranger. Consider it from Ephesians chapter 2. This is the description of every person who has not been born again by the power of God. This is the description of them. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If if you have not been born again, you're a child of wrath. People say, I'm a child of God. If you haven't been born again, you're not. You're a child of wrath. And then this, though we were strangers wandering from the fold of God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
You have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we could just continue reading from there. But we find this, we were all, if you're not a Christian, you were one. If you're not a Christian, you're one who's still wandering from God. You're still a stranger to the household of faith. You're an enemy of God. But if you're a Christian, that's who you used to be. That Jesus sought me when I was a stranger, wandering from God. The last part of this verse, He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood. If you're not trusting in Christ, what danger are you in? Is the danger real? Is there a real and legitimate threat against you if you're not following Christ? We could say temporally, yes. You know, the Scripture says this, the way of the transgressor is hard. And I've known a number of people in my life, personally and even generally, that they live very wicked lives and they suffer because of it. Their families are estranged. Their finances are gone. Their health is poor, full of all sorts of diseases through loose living. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's dangerous. You rebel against God and live in sin. It's physically dangerous. But that's not, I don't think, the primary point of the hymn here. To rescue me from danger. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. All those who are found outside of Christ are in danger of the wrath of God and the sufferings of hell. There's danger against those who are not in Christ. And what has He done? What has this Jesus, this fountain from which every blessing flows, what has He done to rescue us from danger? We find in Romans chapter 8, from verse 31 on, This is how we know we've been rescued from danger. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son. See, here's the reference to Him giving up His precious blood. He's interposed it. He's put it in our place. He's covered us with it. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. His blood has been interposed. Jesus has placed His own blood, His own life, as the the payment for those who deserved wrath and now are being spared. And as long as the Father is pleased to look on the blood of His Son, and we know in Isaiah 53 it tells us what? It pleased the Lord, the Father, to crush Jesus. As long as God is pleased to look at what His Son did, there's no condemnation for us, and we are indeed delivered from that final danger. The last verse begins for us this way. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Do you wake up every day thinking about the fact that your entire eternity is indebted to Christ? What Jesus Christ has done for me. And and this is maybe more easy when things go well. Whenever you get that poor news concerning your health or your loved one. Or you have that sin issue with your spouse or with yourself. How much am I inclined to see that I'm indebted daily to grace? I mentioned this earlier from Philippians 3. Here's the Apostle Paul. And this is his attitude. 
He says, in other words, because of the grace of God that I have been given, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Because of the grace of God, I'm constrained to live my life as a debtor. This is how Paul puts it in Philippians 3 about this striving and apprehending. He puts it this way, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Jesus apprehended me. Though I was a stranger that deserved hell and the wrath of God, Jesus grabbed me and says, this one's mine. You can't have this one. This one is going to be secure. And it's one who looks at the grace of God and says, I'm indebted to Him. He saved my soul. How can I live for Him this day and every day? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let Thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, Bind my wandering heart to Thee. What's a fetter mean? What's a fetter? It's a chain. That's right. It's like handcuffs. You've been latched onto. There's this grabbing hold of, this arresting and restraining. He's saying, let, the, let Your grace be the thing which so holds on to my heart to keep it from wandering. Consider again the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. You begin to get the idea. This Paul was such a wicked man and he knew how evil he was that when Jesus saved him, what else could he do but live for him? He knew what he deserved. And he writes this way and says this, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Let Thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, grab it. Let it bind my heart to You. Paul says the love of Christ controls. It constrains. It grabs hold of me. The grace of God. Christ died for me and that holds my attention. And then he says this, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here's the point. Our hearts are prone to wander from God. You close your eyes to pray and your mind goes everywhere else but God. You have the things I need to do today. The person, what they said to me. The things I'm not happy about. All of these things are sailing my mind to keep me from praying to God. My mind wanders because my heart wanders. Because I'm not really loving this God. Prone to leave the God I love. I love the Lord, but oh, I'm prone to wander. Let me tell you this. If you live a life of nothing but wandering and it doesn't bother you, then you don't love God. The true Christian says, because I love God, it bothers me when my heart wanders from Him. I don't want to wander from my God. And notice in the Galatians 5 verse, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You actually want to live for God if you're a Christian. And then our last verse and last line, and we'll conclude with this. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. What does this mean? Seal my heart? What does that mean? 
What's this idea of a heart being sealed? Well, I'll give you this. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a seal that was placed upon the Israelites. Though most of them did not know God, they did not love God, and they proved it over and over and over and over again, there was always a remnant, a handful of people, saints within Israel, who did love God. And here's what happens. There's the seal, though, the mark, the indication that you are a part of that national people was circumcision. That's how you knew this person is of this nation. And we're promised that there's a seal given to us in the New Testament. You know what it is? It's not baptism. It's not praying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart. It's nothing like that. It's not you went to church. It's not you read your Bible. It's not that you pray. Here's the seal of the New Testament. Here's what it means to truly be a child of God. God promises. He says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act in Ezekiel 36, but for my name, which you've profaned among the nations. You said we're God's people, but then you didn't live like it. You profaned my name. He said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to write my law on your heart. There's going to be a sealing on your heart by the Holy Spirit. And we find in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 this. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you have been born again, it means your old, dirty, bad, evil heart has been removed and you've been given a new heart of flesh that loves God. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit of God in you. And that's the seal. And we cry out, Lord, my heart is sealed for you. I love you because of the work you've done in me. He doesn't doesn't say, I seal it. He says, Lord, you seal it. You can't seal your own heart. The Scripture says the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? God, You seal my heart. You do in me what I cannot do in myself. My final prayer I would offer up to us all is that in light of this glorious grace and the death of Christ on the cross for us, I pray that we would all have our hearts tuned to seeing His grace. Has your heart tuned to sing? When you hear about this salvation, this interposing of precious blood, does that make you want to sing to Jesus and say, thank you, my God and King, for what you've done? Is your heart tuned to sing His grace and to rejoice in the salvation that you've been given? If you're one who says, I don't know that salvation, it's a very simple call that you would repent and trust in Him. There is one who has left the courts of heaven and come as a man to die in the place of sinners. And all who put their faith in Him will not be put to shame. And so I pray that encourages you. I ask you to bow with me. I want to close in prayer. And then I'd like to sing that song one more time again, maybe with a little bit of fresh zeal after hearing what it means. So Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for moving and stirring hymn writers throughout the ages to Give us these songs that help us to express the truth of Your Word with our lips together. Father, I pray that these things would be true in us and that You would be glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.